Story eighteen of Christmas Stories by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story eighteen, Doctor Marigold, Part two. Two to be taken with a grain of salt. I have always noticed a prevalent want of courage, even among persons of superior intelligence and culture, as to imparting their own psychological experiences when those have been of a strange sort almost all men are afraid that what they could relate in such wise would find no parallel or response in a listener's internal life and might be suspected or laughed at a truthful traveller who should have seen some extraordinary creature in the likeness of a sea-serpent would have no fear of mentioning it but the same traveller having had some singular presentiment impulse vagary of thought vision so called dream or other remarkable mental impression would hesitate considerably before he would own to it to this reticence i attribute much of the obscurity in which such subjects are involved we do not habitually communicate our experiences of these subjective things as we do our experiences of objective creation the consequence is that the general stock of experience in this regard appears exceptional and really is so in respect of being miserably imperfect in what i am going to relate i have no intention of setting up opposing or supporting any theory whatever i know the history of the bookseller of berlin i have studied the case of the wife of a late astronomer royal as related by sir david brewster and i have followed the minutest details of a much more remarkable case of spectral illusion occurring within my private circle of friends it may be necessary to state as to this last that the sufferer a lady was in no degree however distant related to me a mistaken assumption on that head might suggest an explanation of a part of my own case but only a part which would be wholly without foundation it cannot be referred to my inheritance of any developed peculiarity nor had i ever before any at all similar experience nor have i ever had any at all similar experience since it does not signify how many years ago or how few a certain murder was committed in england which attracted great attention we hear more than enough of murderers as they rise in succession to their atrocious eminence and i would bury the memory of this particular brute if i could as his body was buried in newgate jail i purposely abstain from giving any direct clue to the criminal's individuality when the murder was first discovered no suspicion fell or i ought rather to say for i cannot be too precise in my facts it was nowhere publicly hinted that any suspicion fell on the man who was afterwards brought to trial as no reference was at that time made to him in the newspapers it is obviously impossible that any description of him can at that time have been given in the newspapers it is essential that this fact be remembered unfolding at breakfast my morning paper containing the account of that first discovery i found it to be deeply interesting and i read it with close attention i read it twice if not three times the discovery had been made in a bedroom and when i laid down the paper i was aware of a flash rush flow 
I do not know what to call it, no word I can find is satisfactorily descriptive, in which I seem to see that bedroom passing through my room like a picture impossibly painted on a running river. Though almost instantaneous in its passing, it was perfectly clear, so clear that I distinctly and with a sense of relief observed the absence of the dead body from the bed. It was in no romantic place that I had this curious sensation, but in chambers in Piccadilly, very near to the corner of St. James's Street. It was entirely new to me. I was in my easy chair at the moment, and the sensation was accompanied with a peculiar shiver which started the chair from its position. But it is to be noted that the chair ran easily on casters. I went to one of the windows, there are two in the room, and the room is on the second floor, to refresh my eyes with the moving objects down in Piccadilly. It was a bright autumn morning, and the street was sparkling and cheerful. The wind was high. As I looked out, it brought down from the park a quantity of fallen leaves which a gust took and whirled into a spiral pillar. As the pillar fell and the leaves dispersed, I saw two men on the opposite side of the way, going from west to east. They were one behind the other. The foremost man often looked back over his shoulder. The second man followed him, at a distance of some thirty paces, with his right hand menacingly raised. First the singularity and steadiness of this threatening gesture in so public a thoroughfare attracted my attention and next the more remarkable circumstance that nobody heeded it both men threaded their way among the other passengers with a smoothness hardly consistent even with the action of walking on a pavement and no single creature that i could see gave them place touched them or looked after them in passing before my windows they both stared up at me i saw their two faces very distinctly and I knew that I could recognize them anywhere. Not that I had consciously noticed anything very remarkable in either face, except that the man who went first had an unusually lowering appearance, and that the face of the man who followed him was of the color of impure wax. I am a bachelor, and my valet and his wife constitute my whole establishment my occupation is in a certain branch bank and i wish that my duties as head of a department were as light as they are popularly supposed to be they kept me in town that autumn when i stood in need of change i was not ill but i was not well my reader is to make the most that can be reasonably made of my feeling jaded having a depressing sense upon me of a monotonous life and being slightly dyspeptic I am assured by my renowned doctor that my real state of health at that time justifies no stronger description, and I quote his own from his written answer to my request for it. As the circumstances of the murder gradually unraveling took stronger and stronger possession of the public mind, I kept them away from mine, knowing as little about them as was possible in the midst of the universal excitement but I knew that a verdict of willful murder had been found against the suspected murderer, and that he had been committed to Newgate for trial. I also knew that his trial had been postponed over one sessions of the Central Criminal Court, on the ground of general prejudice and want of time for the preparation of the defence. 
i may further have known but i believe i did not when or about when the sessions to which his trial stood postponed would come on my sitting-room bedroom and dressing-room are all on one floor with the last there is no communication but through the bedroom true there is a door in it once communicating with the staircase but a part of the fitting of my bath has been and had then been for some years fixed across it at the same period and as a part of the same arrangement the door had been nailed up and canvassed over i was standing in my bedroom late one night giving some directions to my servant before he went to bed my face was towards the only available door of communication with the dressing-room and it was closed my servant's back was towards that door while i was speaking to him i saw it open and a man look in who very earnestly and mysteriously beckoned to me that man was the man who had gone second of the two along piccadilly and whose face was of the colour of impure wax the figure having beckoned drew back and closed the door with no longer pause than was made by my crossing the bedroom i opened the dressing-room door and looked in i had a lighted candle already in my hand i felt no inward expectation of seeing the figure in the dressing-room and i did not see it there conscious that my servant stood amazed i turned round to him and said derrick could you believe that in my cool senses i fancied that i saw a as i there laid my hand upon his breast with a sudden start he trembled violently and said oh lord yes sir a dead man beckoning now i do not believe that this john derrick my trusty and attached servant for more than twenty years had any impression whatever of having seen any such figure until i touched him the change in him was so startling when i touched him that i fully believe he derived his impression in some occult manner from me at that instant i bade john derrick bring some brandy and i gave him a dram and was glad to take one myself of what had preceded that night's phenomenon i told him not a single word reflecting on it i was absolutely certain that i had never seen that face before except on the one occasion in piccadilly comparing its expression when beckoning at the door with its expression when it had stared up at me as i stood at my window i came to the conclusion that on the first occasion it had sought to fasten itself upon my memory and that on the second occasion it had made sure of being immediately remembered i was not very comfortable that night though i felt a certainty difficult to explain that the figure would not return at daylight i fell into a heavy sleep from which i was awakened by john derrick's coming to my bedside with a paper in his hand this paper it appeared had been the subject of an altercation at the door between its bearer and my servant it was a summons to me to serve upon a jury at the forthcoming sessions of the central criminal court at the old bailey i had never before been summoned on such a jury as john derrick well knew he believed i am not certain at this hour whether with reason or otherwise that that class of jurors were customarily chosen on a lower qualification than mine and he had at first refused to accept the summons the man who served it had taken the matter very coolly 
he had said that my attendance or non-attendance was nothing to him there the summons was and i should deal with it at my own peril and not at his for a day or two i was undecided whether to respond to this call or take no notice of it i was not conscious of the slightest mysterious bias influence or attraction one way or other of that i am as strictly sure as of every other statement that i make here ultimately i decided as a break in the monotony of my life that i would go the appointed morning was a raw morning in the month of november there was a dense brown fog in piccadilly and it became positively black and in the last degree oppressive east of temple bar i found the passages and staircases of the court-house flaringly lighted with gas and the court itself similarly illuminated i think that until i was conducted by officers into the old court and saw its crowded state i did not know that the murderer was to be tried that day i think that until i was so helped into the old court with considerable difficulty i did not know into which of the two courts sitting my summons would take me but this must not be received as a positive assertion for i am not completely satisfied in my mind on either point i took my seat in the place appropriated to jurors in waiting and i looked about the court as well as i could through the cloud of fog and breath that was heavy in it i noticed the black vapour hanging like a murky curtain outside the great windows and i noticed the stifled sound of wheels on the straw or tan that was littered in the street also the hum of the people gathered there which a shrill whistle or a louder song or hail than the rest occasionally pierced soon afterwards the judges two in number entered and took their seats the buzz of the court was awfully hushed the direction was given to put the murderer to the bar he appeared there and in that same instant i recognized in him the first of the two men who had gone down piccadilly if my name had been called then i doubt if i could have answered to it audibly but it was called about sixth or eighth in the panel and i was by that time able to say here now observe as i stepped into the box the prisoner who had been looking on attentively but with no sign of concern became violently agitated and beckoned to his attorney the prisoner's wish to challenge me was so manifest that it occasioned a pause during which the attorney with his hand upon the dock whispered with his client and shook his head i afterwards had it from that gentleman that the prisoner's first affrighted words to him were at all hazards challenge that man but that as he would give no reason for it and admitted that he had not even known my name until he heard it called and i appeared it was not done both on the ground already explained that i wished to avoid reviving the unwholesome memory of that murderer and also because a detailed account of his long trial is by no means indispensable to my narrative i shall confine myself closely to such incidents in the ten days and nights during which we the jury were kept together as directly bear on my own curious personal experience it is in that and not in the murderer that i seek to interest my reader it is to that and not to a page of the newgate calendar that i beg attention i was chosen foreman of the jury on the second morning of the trial after evidence had been taken for two hours 
I heard the church clocks strike. Happening to cast my eyes over my brother jurymen, I found an inexplicable difficulty in counting them. I counted them several times, yet always with the same difficulty. In short, I made them one too many. I touched the brother juryman, whose place was next to me, and I whispered to him, "'Oblige me by counting us.' He looked surprised by the request, but turned his head and counted. "'Why,' says he suddenly, "'we are third. "'But no, it is not possible. "'No, we are twelve. According to my counting that day, we were always right in detail, but in the gross we were always one too many. There was no appearance, no figure, to account for it, but I had now an inward foreshadowing of the figure that was surely coming. The jury were housed at the London Tavern. We all slept in one large room on separate tables, and we were constantly in the charge and under the eye of the officers sworn to hold us in safe-keeping. I see no reason for suppressing the real name of that officer. He was intelligent, highly polite and obliging, and, I was glad to hear, much respected in the city. He had an agreeable presence, good eyes, enviable black whiskers, and a fine sonorous voice. His name was Mr. Harker. When we turned into our twelve beds at night, Mr. Harker's bed was drawn across the door. On the night of the second day, not being disposed to lie down, and seeing Mr. Harker sitting on his bed, I went and sat beside him, and offered him a pinch of snuff. As Mr. Harker's hand touched mine in taking it from my box, a peculiar shiver crossed him, and he said, "'Who is this?' Following Mr. Harker's eyes, and looking along the room, I saw again the figure I expected, the second of the two men who had gone down Piccadilly." I rose and advanced a few steps, then stopped and looked round at Mr. Harker. He was quite unconcerned, laughed, and said in a pleasant way, I thought for a moment we had a thirteenth juryman without a bed, but I see it is the moonlight. Making no revelation to Mr. Harker, but inviting him to take a walk with me to the end of the room, I watched what the figure did. It stood for a few moments by the bedside of each of my eleven brother jurymen, close to the pillow. It always went to the right-hand side of the bed, and always passed out crossing the foot of the next bed. It seemed, from the action of the head, merely to look down pensively at each recumbent figure. It took no notice of me or of my bed, which was that nearest to Mr. Harker's. It seemed to go out where the moonlight came in, through a high window, as by an aerial flight of stairs. Next morning at breakfast it appeared that everybody present had dreamed of the murdered man last night, except myself and Mr. Harker. I now felt convinced that the second man who had gone down Piccadilly was the murdered man, so to speak, as if it had been borne into my comprehension by his immediate testimony. But even this took place, and in a manner for which I was not at all prepared. On the fifth day of the trial, when the case for the prosecution was drawing to a close, a miniature of the murdered man, missing from his bedroom upon the discovery of the deed, and afterwards found in a hiding-place where the murderer had been seen digging, was put in evidence. Having been identified by the witness under examination, it was handed up to the bench, and thence handed down to be inspected by the jury. 
as an officer in a black gown was making his way with it across to me the figure of the second man who had gone down piccadilly impetuously started from the crowd caught the miniature from the officer and gave it to me with his own hands at the same time saying in a low and hollow tone before i saw the miniature which was in a locket i was younger then and my face was not then drained of blood it also came between me and the brother juryman to whom i would have given the miniature and between him and the brother juryman to whom he would have given it and so passed it on through the whole of our number and back into my possession not one of them however detected this at table and generally when we were shut up together in mr harker's custody we had from the first naturally discussed the day's proceedings a good deal on that fifth day the case for the prosecution being closed and we having that side of the question in a completed shape before us our discussion was more animated and serious among our number was a vestryman the densest idiot i have ever seen at large who met the plainest evidence with the most preposterous objections and who was sided with by two flabby parochial parasites all the three impanelled from a district so delivered over to fever that they ought to have been upon their own trial for five hundred murders when these mischievous blockheads were at their loudest which was towards midnight while some of us were already preparing for bed i again saw the murdered man he stood grimly behind them beckoning to me on my going towards them and striking into the conversation he immediately retired this was the beginning of a separate series of appearances confined to that long room in which we were confined whenever a knot of my brother jurymen laid their heads together i saw the head of the murdered man among theirs whenever their comparison of notes was going against him he would solemnly and irresistibly beckon to me it will be borne in mind that down to the production of the miniature on the fifth day of the trial i had never seen the appearance in court three changes occurred now that we entered on the case for the defence two of them i will mention together first the figure was now in court continually and it never there addressed itself to me but always to the person who was speaking at the time for instance the throat of the murdered man had been cut straight across in the opening speech for the defence it was suggested that the deceased might have cut his own throat at that very moment the figure with its throat in the dreadful condition referred to this it had concealed before stood at the speaker's elbow motioning across and across its windpipe now with the right hand now with the left vigorously suggesting to the speaker himself the impossibility of such a wound having been self-inflicted by either hand for another instance a witness to character a woman deposed to the prisoners being the most amiable of mankind the figure at that instant stood on the floor before her looking her full in the face and pointing out the prisoner's evil countenance with an extended arm and an outstretched finger the third change now to be added impressed me strongly as the most marked and striking of all i do not theorize upon it i accurately state it and then leave it although the appearance was not itself perceived by those whom it addressed 
its coming close to such persons was invariably attended by some trepidation or disturbance on their part it seemed to me as if it were prevented by laws to which i was not amenable from fully revealing itself to others and yet as if it could invisibly dumbly and darkly overshadow their minds when the leading counsel for the defence suggested that hypothesis of suicide and the figure stood at the learned gentleman's elbow frightfully sawing at its severed throat it is undeniable that the counsel faltered in his speech lost for a few seconds the thread of his ingenious discourse wiped his forehead with his handkerchief and turned extremely pale when the witness to character was confronted by the appearance her eyes most certainly did follow the direction of its pointed finger and rest in great hesitation and trouble upon the prisoner's face two additional illustrations will suffice on the eighth day of the trial after the pause which was every day made early in the afternoon for a few minutes rest and refreshment i came back into court with the rest of the jury some little time before the return of the judges standing up in the box and looking about me i thought the figure was not there until chancing to raise my eyes to the gallery i saw it bending forward and leaning over a very decent woman as if to assure itself whether the judges had resumed their seats or not immediately afterwards that woman screamed fainted and was carried out so with the venerable sagacious and patient judge who conducted the trial when the case was over and he settled himself and his papers to sum up the murdered man entered by the judge's door advanced to his lordship's desk and looked eagerly over his shoulder at the pages of his notes which he was turning a change came over his lordship's face his hand stopped the peculiar shiver that i knew so well passed over him he faltered excuse me gentlemen for a few moments i am somewhat oppressed by the vitiated air and did not recover until he had drunk a glass of water through all the monotony of six of these interminable ten days the same judges and others on the bench the same murderer in the dock the same lawyers at the table the same tones of question and answer rising to the roof of the court the same scratching of the judge's pen the same ushers going in and out the same lights kindled at the same hour when there had been any natural light of day the same foggy curtain outside the great windows when it was foggy the same rain pattering and dripping when it was rainy the same footmarks of turnkeys and prisoner day after day on the same sawdust the same keys locking and unlocking the same heavy doors through all the wearisome monotony which made me feel as if i had been foreman of the jury for a vast period of time and piccadilly had flourished coevally with babylon the murdered man never lost one trace of his distinctness in my eyes nor was he at any moment less distinct than anybody else i must not omit as a matter of fact that i never once saw the appearance which i call by the name of the murdered man look at the murderer again and again i wondered why does he not but he never did nor did he look at me after the production of the miniature until the last closing minutes of the trial arrived we retired to consider at seven minutes before ten at night 
the idiotic vestryman and his two parochial parasites gave us so much trouble that we twice returned into court to beg to have certain extracts from the judge's notes re-read nine of us had not the smallest doubt about those passages neither i believe did any one in the court the dunder-headed triumvirate however having no idea but obstruction disputed them for that very reason at length we prevailed and finally the jury returned into court at ten minutes past twelve the murdered man at that time stood directly opposite the jury-box on the other side of the court as i took my place his eyes rested on me with great attention he seemed satisfied and slowly shook a great grey veil which he carried on his arm for the first time over his head and whole form as i gave in our verdict guilty the veil collapsed all was gone and his place was empty the murderer being asked by the judge according to usage whether he had anything to say before sentence of death should be passed upon him indistinctly muttered something which was described in the leading newspapers of the following day as a few rambling incoherent and half-audible words in which he was understood to complain that he had not had a fair trial because the foreman of the jury was prepossessed against him the remarkable declaration that he really made was this my lord i knew i was a doomed man when the foreman of my jury came into the box my lord i knew he would never let me off because before i was taken he somehow got to my bedside in the night woke me and put a rope round my neck three to be taken for life so every item of my plan was crowned with success our reunited life was more than all that we had looked forward to content and joy went with us as the wheels of the two carts went round and the same stopped with us when the two carts stopped i was as pleased and as proud as a pug-dog with his muzzle black-leaded for a evening party and his tail extra curled by machinery but i had left something out of my calculations now what had i left out to help you to guess i'll say a figure come make a guess and guess right not no nine no eight no seven no six no five no four no three no two no one no now i'll tell you what i'll do with you i'll say it's another sort of figure altogether there why then says you it's a mortal figure no nor yet a mortal figure by such means you get yourself penned into a corner and you can't help guessing an immortal figure that's about it why didn't you say so sooner yes it was a immortal figure that i had altogether left out of my calculations neither man's nor woman's but a child's girls or boys boys i says the sparrow with my bow and arrow now you have got it we were down at lancaster and i had done two nights more than fair average business though i cannot in honour recommend them as a quick audience in the open square there near the end of the street where mr sly's king's arms and royal hotel stands mem's travelling giant otherwise pickleson happened at the selfsame time to be trying it on in the town the genteel lay was adopted with him 
no hint of a van green bay's alcove leading up to pickleson in a auction room printed poster free list suspended with the exception of that proud boast of an enlightened country a free press schools admitted by private arrangement nothing to raise a blush in the cheek of youth or shock the most fastidious mem swearing most horrible and terrific in a pink calico pay place at the slackness of the public serious handbill in the shops importing that it was all but impossible to come to a right understanding of the history of david without seeing pickleson i went to the auction-room in question and i found it entirely empty of everything but echoes and mouldiness with the single exception of pickleson on a piece of red drugget this suited my purpose as i wanted a private and confidential word with him which was pickleson owing much happiness to you i put you in my will for a five-pun note but to save trouble here's four-pun note down which may equally suit your views and let us so conclude the transaction pickleson who up to that remark had had the dejected appearance of a long roman rushlight that couldn't anyhow get lighted brightened up at his top extremity and made his acknowledgment in a way which for him was parliamentary eloquence he likewise did add that having ceased to draw as a roman mim had made proposals for his going in as a converted indian giant worked upon by the dairyman's daughter this pickleson having no acquaintance with the tract named after that young woman and not being willing to couple gag with his serious views had declined to do thereby leading to words and the total stoppage of the unfortunate young man's beer all of which during the whole of the interview was confirmed by the ferocious growling of mim down below in the pay-place which shook the giant like a leaf but what was to the present point in the remarks of the travelling giant otherwise pickleson was this dr marigold i give his words without a hope of conveying their feebleness who is the strange young man that hangs about your carts the strange young man i gives him back thinking that he meant her and his languid circulation had dropped a syllable doctor he returns with a pathos calculated to draw a tear from even a manly eye i am weak but not so weak yet as that i don't know my words i repeat them doctor the strange young man it then appeared that pickleson being forced to stretch his legs not that they wanted it only at times when he couldn't be seen for nothing to wit at the dead of night and towards daybreak had twice seen hanging about my carts in that same town of lancaster where i had been only two nights this same unknown young man it put me rather out of sorts what it meant as to particulars i no more foreboded then than you forebode now but it put me rather out of sorts however i made light of it to pickleson and i took leave of pickleson advising him to spend his legacy in getting up his stamina and to continue to stand by his religion towards morning i kept a lookout for the strange young man and what was more i saw the strange young man he was well dressed and well looking he loitered very nigh my carts watching them like as if he was taking care of them and soon after daybreak turned and went away i sent a hail after him but he never started or looked round or took the smallest notice 
we left lancaster within an hour or two on our way towards carlisle next morning at daybreak i looked out again for the strange young man i did not see him but next morning i looked out again and there he was once more i sent another hail after him but as before he gave not the slightest sign of being anyways disturbed this put a thought into my head acting on it i watched him in different manners and at different times not necessary to enter into till i found that this strange young man was deaf and dumb the discovery turned me over because i knew that a part of that establishment where she had been was allotted to young men some of them well off and i thought to myself if she favours him where am i and where is all that i have worked and planned for hoping i must confess to the selfishness that she might not favour him i set myself to find out at last i was by accident present at a meeting between them in the open air looking on leaning behind a fir-tree without their knowing it it was a moving meeting for the three parties concerned i knew every syllable that passed between them as well as they did i listened with my eyes which had come to be as quick and true with deaf and dumb conversation as my ears with the talk of people that can speak he was a-going out to china as clerk in a merchant's house which his father had been before him he was in circumstances to keep a wife and he wanted her to marry him and go along with him she persisted no he asked if she didn't love him yes she loved him dearly dearly but she could never disappoint her beloved good noble generous and i don't know what all father meaning me the cheap jack in the sleeved waistcoat and she would stay with him heaven bless him though it was to break her heart then she cried most bitterly and that made up my mind while my mind had been in an unsettled state about her favouring this young man i had felt that unreasonable towards pickleson that it was well for him that he had got his legacy down for i often thought if it hadn't been for this same weak-minded giant i might never have come to trouble my head and wex my soul about the young man but once that i knew she loved him once that i had seen her weep for him it was a different thing i made it right in my mind with pickleson on the spot and i shook myself together to do what was right by all she had left the young man by that time for it took a few minutes to get me thoroughly well shook together and the young man was leaning against another of the fir trees of which there was a cluster with his face upon his arm i touched him on the back looking up and seeing me he says in our deaf and dumb talk do not be angry i am not angry good boy i am your friend come with me i left him at the foot of the steps of the library cart and i went up alone she was drying her eyes you have been crying my dear yes father why a headache not a heartache i said a headache father dr marigold must prescribe for that headache so she took up the book of my prescriptions and held it up with a forced smile but seeing me keep still and look earnest she softly laid it down again and her eyes were very attentive the prescription is not there sophie where is it here my dear i brought her young husband in and i put her hand in his 
and my only farther words to both of them were these dr marigold's last prescription to be taken for life after which i bolted when the wedding come off i mounted a coat blue and bright buttons for the first and last time in all my days and i give sophie away with my own hand there were only us three and the gentleman who had had charge of her for those two years i give the wedding dinner of four in the library cart pigeon pie a leg of pickled pork a pair of fowls and suitable garden stuff the best of drinks i give them a speech and the gentlemen give us a speech and all our jokes told and the whole went off like a skyrocket in the course of the entertainment i explained to sophie that i should keep the library cart as my living cart when not upon the road and that i should keep all her books for her just as they stood till she come back to claim them so she went to china with her young husband and it was a parting sorrowful and heavy and i got the boy i had another service and so as of old when my child and wife were gone i went plodding along alone with my whip over my shoulder at the old horse's head sophie wrote me many letters and i wrote her many letters about the end of the first year she sent me one in an unsteady hand dearest father not a week ago i had a darling little daughter but i am so well that they let me write these words to you dearest and best father i hope my child may not be deaf and dumb but i do not yet know when i wrote back i hinted the question but as sophie never answered that question i felt it to be a sad one and i never repeated it for a long time our letters were regular but then they got irregular through sophie's husband being moved to another station and through my being always on the move but we were in one another's thoughts i was equally sure letters or no letters five years odd months had gone since sophie went away i was still the king of the cheap jacks and at a greater height of popularity than ever i had had a first-rate autumn of it and on the twenty-third of december one thousand eight hundred and sixty-four i found myself at uxbridge middlesex clean sold out so i jogged up to london with the old horse light and easy to have my christmas eve and christmas day alone by the fire in the library cart and then to buy a regular new stock of goods all round to sell em again and get the money i am a neat hand at cookery and i'll tell you what i knocked up for my christmas eve dinner in the library cart i knocked up a beefsteak pudding for one with two kidneys a dozen oysters and a couple of mushrooms thrown in it's a pudding to put a man in good humour with everything except the two bottom buttons of his waistcoat having relished that pudding and cleared away i turned the lamp low and sat down by the light of the fire watching it as it shone upon the backs of sophie's books sophie's books so brought up sophie's self that i saw her touching face quite plainly before i dropped off dozing by the fire this may be a reason why sophie with her deaf and dumb child in her arms seemed to stand silent by me all through my nap i was on the road off the road in all sorts of places north and south and west and east winds liked best and winds liked least here and there and gone astray over the hills and far away and still she stood silent by me with her silent child in her arms 
Even when I woke with a start, she seemed to vanish, as if she had stood by me in that very place only a single instant before. I had started at a real sound, and the sound was on the steps of the cart. It was the light, hurried tread of a child coming clambering up. That tread of a child had once been so familiar to me that for half a moment I believed I was a-going to see a little ghost. But the touch of a real child was laid upon the outer handle of the door, and the handle turned, and the door opened a little way, and a real child peeped in, a bright little comely girl with large dark eyes. Looking full at me, the tiny creature took off her mite of a straw hat, and a quantity of dark curls fell all about her face. Then she opened her lips, and in a pretty voice, "'Grandfather!' "'Ah, oh, my God!' I cries out. "'She can speak!' "'Yes, dear grandfather, and I am to ask you whether there was ever any one that I remind you of.' In a moment Sophie was around my neck as well as the child, and her husband was a-wringing my hand with his face hid, and we all had to shake ourselves together before we could get over it. And when we did begin to get over it, and I saw the pretty child a-talking, pleased and quick and eager and busy, to her mother, in the signs that I had first taught her mother, the happy and yet pitying tears fell rolling down my face. End of Story 18, Part 2